0: Glad you're here on this Thanksgiving weekend, um, but in typical fashion, I'm going to preach what I'm going to preach and not based on a holiday. I will I will give you a Thanksgiving thought and something to launch us off into Christmas uh, at the end. But, um, Galatians chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We are at a point where Paul is doing more than just laying down facts, but he's expounding on... What he's been teaching in Galatians 3, Paul starts out by pointing to or or appealing to two sources to help the Galatians see and understand that they have come to know Christ and know God and and have righteousness before God. Uh, He appeals to two things to point that out to them. First, he appeals to their experience. He says to them uh, in, in two different ways. He says, first, you entered into life. You came to life. You came to experience life or receiving the spirit not by works, but by faith. And the second way he does that, and he's doing this by answering, asking questions. You can see it in Galatians chapter 3, uh, 1 through 5. The second way he does that is he then, through a question, begins to illustrate that they not only entered into life, or they not only received salvation through faith, but they'll remain saved through faith. So they didn't just... God didn't simply say, you're righteous, you're, you're justified, you're sinless before me. Because you believed, and now now you have to live that way and make yourself acceptable to me. He says, not only do you enter by faith, but you remain in uh, God's, it, it, you remain justified by faith. It's the, the way you enter is the way you remain. and it's just the, the, the way our life is. It's all about faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Then he appeals to Scripture. and he begins, uh, I think like five or six verses he pulls from the Old Testament to demonstrate, that not only what they've experienced, he's he's really substantiating their experiences. He's beginning to show them that their experience is something that they can depend on because it lines up with the truth of what's taught in Scripture. Now, at this point when he's standing before the Galatians and teaching the, the first time and then writing this letter... I mean, all he had to rely on was the Old Testament. So all that he's teaching them about this life, this this justification by faith, being found innocent before God by faith, that's all Old Testament concepts. It's not something new. It's not something that just came to be, but it's Old Testament truth. And so he appeals to the Scripture. He appeals to the Old Testament, and he points out that the Galatians are really... And the message, really, that he preached to them originally was not something that God just came up with on the spur of the moment. It wasn't like, okay, everything else I've done has failed, and so now I'm going to try this faith thing. You know, I, I created them without sin, and they still rebelled. That, that didn't work. It, it, God didn't think that way. He, he didn't look and say, well, you know, I adopted this people and called them my own. I gave them this list of rules to follow, and they, and they screwed that up. That didn't work. He doesn't think like that. In fact, that's really what we're going to be dealing with today. It's not that God looked at that and said, well, that that didn't make it. That one didn't help them. And so now let's try this faith thing because maybe now we can get it right. That's not the way it worked. Really, the message that Paul was proclaiming and what he was wanting these Galatians to understand and to realize was the very promise that God had made all the way back to Abraham thousands of years before. It was the same message that had been proclaimed throughout all of the Old Testament. And so in these verses last week, as we focused on that and talked about it, we really focused on the promise of God. And we talked a lot about his promise, his guarantee that he was going to fulfill, um, that, that, that was ultimately going to find its fulfillment in Christ. He began to to really present this promise as the answer to our greatest problem our greatest problem is is that we are fallen separated from our creator and really beyond every other thing that we think is a is an issue in our day like going to work and having a bad day that sometimes is an issue so you know going to finding out that your kids are are not all you thought they were you know sometimes that can lead to some some you know i i think my kids are perfect most days not I know better than that i mean i was a kid I, I know what that's about but the reality is is that when you find things out that that are different than what you think of them it's some kind that can be very distressing but but the reality is is that even those problems even the stresses of normal life measure nothing in comparison to this greatest need of ours to be reconnected with the God who created us, the God who, who now is providing salvation for us, the God who, who says that if you're, if you're not with me, you're going to be against me and you're going to experience my wrath. And, 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 and that is not something I want anybody that I know to experience. But God made a promise, and he made that promise to Abraham, and that promise we saw last week was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now in these verses, we can't just leave these verses because if we did, you guys wouldn't get the full extent of what Paul's doing. We would be focusing on the promise and not even deal with really what Paul's dealing with in the verses. Paul is juxtaposing or he's comparing the law and the promise and he's pointing out That that one doesn't nullify the that the law doesn't nullify the promise, that the the promise is better than the law, and he wants his readers to see that also the law then kind of complements the promise. And so today we're going to stick with the verses that we read last week. We're gonna read through them again, and actually we'll get through the end of chapter chapter three as we compare now the promise and the law. Because last week as we focused on the promise, we didn't really do the comparison that needs to be done before we move on from this passage. So, if you got your Bibles, Galatians chapter 3, we'll work through it starting in verse 15. Um, and uh, let's see what the Lord has for us here today. Verse 15, to give human example. Remember, he's using a, a human illustration to point out a, a spiritual truth. To give a human example, brothers. Even with with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ? This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, now as we read that last week and as we went through that, there was three points, and I want to remind them, of you, remind them to you today so that as we make the comparisons, these things are in your mind. The promise was a guarantee given by and dependent on God. God had made that promise to Abraham. Abraham didn't even really take part in the work of the covenant, he didn't take part in, in saying, hey, yeah, I agree to that too. God said, hey, this is the promise I'm making to you. He didn't sit down with Abraham and, and hash it out. There was no negotiation. It wasn't like, hey, you know, like when we go in to buy a car, we're really trying to get the best deal we can. God said, this is the way it's going to be. Take it or leave it. This is my promise to you. See, God, he, he, he chose to make the promise. He's the one that decided to do it. He chose to make the promise and it was through God that the promise would be fulfilled. Only God could fulfill the promise. All we can do is trust in Him. So the promise is a guarantee given by and dependent upon God. The second point was Abraham was originally given the promise, but the heir of the promise is Jesus. Even as Abraham stood that, or actually he was asleep, We, we remember, if you remember the passage from Genesis, God put, us, put him to sleep and he was in this supernatural nap and, and darkness fell on him. There was nothing he could do, but God was speaking to him anyway and he could hear God and there's all this craziness going on and Abraham had no part of it, but God said, this is the promise I'm making to you and to your offspring. And then Paul points out that the offspring wasn't even Abraham's son, Isaac. In fact, God turned around later, and we didn't go over this, but you can read about it in Genesis. God turned around later and reaffirmed this promise to Isaac. And this offspring that God was referring to wasn't Isaac's son Jacob. God ended up reaffirming this promise to Jacob. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all hear this same promise from God that he's going to provide an offspring, and this promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we see that truly the ultimate heir of the promise is Jesus And everybody that lived before Jesus looked to Jesus or or looked forward to His coming. They didn't know His name. They didn't know what He was going to look like. They didn't know how He was going to come. They didn't know any of that. All they did was look forward to this coming offspring, this one that would come. And now we live with the light of history shining on Jesus. and, And now we live and we know His name. We know how He came. We know His purpose. We know His life. We know his sacrifice. And so now we look back on faith, trusting that Jesus was the offspring or the one that fulfilled the promise. And then thirdly, we didn't deal with this too heavily. It's really going to be our launching point today. The law does not supersede the promise because they have different purposes. Here's what happens, I think, a lot of times as we deal with ideas like this. If if you've not gone to seminary, if you've not sat and studied this stuff, if you if you hear these words, promise and law, we get all jacked up and we're in our minds, and we can't, and, and it just becomes confusing. And I hope that today, as we see this comparison made, that you will begin to see that the law was never intended for the purpose that it was used. The law was never to be, never given with the intent that it would be. It would be some way or some path of righteousness. I hope that you'll see that really the law though doesn't contradict the promise that God made, but is all part of the same redemptive history that God is working and has always been working to bring us to a place where we could see Jesus in the flesh, where we could see and understand that his death his his death on that cross was substitutionary, that, that it won for us a victory that we couldn't win for ourselves, that even in the giving of the law, He was pointing us to Jesus. You see, we get this idea that in some ways, because the way it's often presented to us, and, and it's hard to understand and it's difficult, because we weren't Jews. We didn't grow up with this. It's not like, it's not like we grew up um, being taught that every... Every so many months, we're going to get together and we're going to slaughter these animals and that's going to provide for us some forgiveness. We didn't get taught, you know, that, that if we can live by this, this 613 rules that's in the Torah, we didn't get taught that if, those, if we could just do those things all the time, that, that God would say, yeah, you're, you're acceptable to me. So we didn't, we didn't grow up with the law just being constantly taught to us. It's not part of our, it's not part of our life. But see, we get brought up and, and taught things like the Ten Commandments. You know, God will love you if you'll obey your parents. That's really what the Jews were doing, just on a larger scale. If you don't lie, cheat, and steal, God will love you and he will accept you. If you'll just follow these rules, if you'll just live this way that I tell you to live, then God will say you're acceptable to Him. And see, and so as I talk about the law, I want you to, I want you to put it in a frame of reference that you'll understand, that you'll be able to hang on to and kind of grasp. In our culture, especially where most of us live today, we live in, in, in a society that says we can be good enough. We live in a day and age where people all the time stand up and say, well, you know, I I know that one day when I stand before God, He'll, he'll, he'll look at me and say, you're, you're really a good person. I, I, I'll accept you. You can come on in to my heaven. But see, that, that's not right at all. But without the law, without the work of God throughout redemptive history, I think it would be very difficult for us to see See, the promise, the promise of God brought blessing. You can see that in Galatians 3.9. The promise of God brought with it or provided for righteousness so that that when God looked at you, instead of seeing the sinner that we are, he sees us as right, he sees us as sinless, he sees us as innocent. The promise guaranteed an inheritance for us. Something to look forward to. And I mean, just think of this. Think of it. How many of us have an inheritance waiting for us? Maybe, maybe you have some rich relative, and I know we don't talk about like talk like this in, in good company. But it's somewhere in the back of your mind you're thinking, "Wow, when they go, I've got all this money waiting for me." Have you ever thought that horrible thought? Have you ever, have you ever looked at it like that? There's not many inheritances that we have to look forward to that we don't want. Come on, you can be honest. I don't have any rich family anymore, so there's not many that, you know, but I'll take what I can get. But inheritances are good. There's things, that's something we long for, but this inheritance, that the promise guaranteed us, is it, it, something to be longed for, something to be desired. And it puts every inheritance that we could have today to shame. And when you begin to think about that, when you begin to think that the promise is much better than the law, when you begin to think God gave us so much just by saying he would do it. It's easy to understand why Paul would ask the questions in the verses to come. Verse 19, he says, Why then the law? Why then the law? And he says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Now I told you last week that that verse, verse 20, some people estimate upwards of 430 interpretations. I'm not, I'm not going to add to that. I'm not going to try and top that. I'm not going to try and lie to you and tell you that anybody knows what it means. Not, nobody really does. I think one thing we can clearly understand is that in this, in this comparison of the law and the promise, you can see that the law was given through an intermediary which simply means that god didn't directly involve himself with people as he did it but there was an intermediary that most people think that points to moses but it could be wrong but with the promise he came down he talked to abraham face to face he talked to isaac he, he he dealt with jacob he gave this promise himself there is no intermediary. There's no. So, so we can see that just by the simple fact that, of involvement, that the promise is, is more special or, or more intentional than the law. But why? Why would God give the law? If the promise was enough, if, if God says that, hey, I'm going to make you righteous, I'm going to give you an inheritance, I'm going to bless you with faith, if, if God has done all of this and He has said, I'm doing it of my own power because I chose to do it, why the law? Why? does it matter? Paul, pretty quickly in those verses, gives us two reasons, I think, and and we'll break them out a little further in just a moment. But he says first that the law was provided because of transgression. Now, it's pretty easy to see that. I mean, that's the exact words he used. Transgression is sin. Uh, So the law was provided because of sin. And then, then he goes on to say that that it was only there for a time until the one that the promise pointed to was revealed. And so let's think of that in this way. The law was provided because of transgression, number one, and the law was provided in order to prepare us for Jesus. And we'll break those out just a little further in just a moment, but we need to get the rest of his questions in mind so that we can kind of see how those break out. So look in verse 21. He says... First he says, why the law, in verse 19, he says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Then in 21, he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul is, he's famous for doing this. He's famous for anticipating questions and that's what these two questions are about. He is thinking about what people are going to ask in light of what he's taught, justifications by faith, the promise brings the blessings of Abraham. And the law, he said all these things all the way through Galatians 3, and the law brings a curse. If that's the case, why in the world would God give a law? And is the law contrary to the promise? And this is really the point of what he's getting at. This is really what he wants them to understand so that then he begins to break out that later. Now, let's just put it all into... To, to, let's put it all into Uh, A frame of reference that we can kind of deal with and then we'll and and then I'll I'll give you some things I hope that will help make it all clear and so that you'll be able to go home and recognize That you don't live under the law because that's really what we're working towards The problem that the Judaizers had the problem that the Galatians had the problem that even people who live by their religion have today is this and we've talked about it already is that we think in some way that these rules that we follow, I don't care what rules you come up with. Let's just, let's just make up a list of rules. I go to church on Sunday. I go to community group one time a week. I, um, I sing while I'm at church. Um, I, I give money. I serve. I volunteer at missional outreach things. I, I do all of these things. And I don't, I don't know, pick some, I I don't get drunk. I don't look at porn. I don't I don't um sleep around on my spouse. I don't do these horrible things. In, in addition to that, I I don't even I don't even think bad of my neighbor. I, I don't even um I, I don't ever dislike anyone. And we could list all these things off. We could we could list all these rules off. The reality is is that we in some way think that these things we do and don't do then make us righteous before God. Here's the problem. The law is not contrary to the promise in the sense that it was given for a specific purpose. But when we begin to look at it for the wrong reason or with the wrong motivation, it contradicts everything. See, the Jews, they looked at the law, they were given the law, they, they, they lived under the law, and God gave them the law for specific reasons. And somewhere along the way, they got it mixed up. And their perspective of the law changed. And they began to think of the law as a pathway to righteousness. They began to think of the law as a way that they could then stand before God and say, look at what I've done, I've finally achieved All that you have called for me to achieve, and now I can enter your presence based on my own efforts because of what I have done and because of what I have achieved and what I have lived in by my own power. I can now stand before you and demand that you accept me. And that was never, never the intent of the law, excuse me. See, the law The law is not a ladder uh, that we can climb up to God and stand before Him on, but it's a mirror that will reveal our true nature. The law was never meant to be something that you and I could climb up and stand before God with. Our list of rules that we can assemble that make us feel good about who we are and what we do and don't do are never intended and have never been something that we could climb up to stand before God and say, now I've done it. I've arrived. But when God, when God gave this law to the Israelites, He really gave it to them as a mirror to reveal their true nature. See, the Jews... They had totally misappropriated and misapplied and and misperceived what the law was about. They wanted to become acceptable by it. They couldn't stand to think that in some ways they weren't fulfilling it, that they weren't measuring up. In fact, they lied to themselves repeatedly about it. And when Jesus came and He walked on the earth and He he was dealing in that culture, He was dealing with these Pharisees who who constantly would walk up to Jesus and and act as if in some way He owed them something and they would test Him and they would question Him and they would say, how do we we attain um, uh, eternal life? And, And Jesus would come back to them and demonstrate to them over and over and over that their works were leaving them hopeless. And one one comes to mind, the rich young ruler, he walks up to Jesus, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, hey, go out and follow these commandments. And the guy says, I've already done all that. I've already taken care of that. I'm there. And Jesus says to him, then go sell all your stuff and give away all your money to the poor. And the guy says, whoa, no, that's not for me. You see, and Jesus showed him that there was a part of him that was worshiping something totally different than the God who he said he wanted to spend time with. His money had become his idol. And so what Jesus had had proven to him, but he wouldn't see it, what Jesus had proven to him was that he wasn't fulfilling the commandments. Because the very first commandment is that you shall not have any other gods before me. But this guy loved his money, and he loved his stuff, and he loved it more than God, and he wanted it more than God. Because when it came down to it, he wouldn't give it up to be with God. You see, over and over and over, you can see this, and as true as it is for the Jews, it's it's just as true for you and I today. I don't care what list of rules you put together. Really, the only one that really counts is not yours. I mean, I I mentioned this last week. We ought to think about it again. God gave the law, and God gave a promise. What he didn't give was your idea of what it takes to be righteous or my idea of what it takes to be righteous. He's not the one that said, "If if you don't go to rated R movies, unless they're about Jesus, then you can be saved. He didn't never say that. He never promised that. He never said that that was the way it was going to be. He never said if, if you don't say this particular list of words like, you know, there's some four-letter words that just not socially acceptable and I just don't want you to say them but if you don't say them, I will save you. He never said that. And so, you know, I mean, our list of rules are, are really irrelevant. It's either the law Or the promise. But the law was never meant to make us righteous. The law couldn't make us righteous. It couldn't be a ladder. It it couldn't do this. It couldn't be what we wanted to be. It couldn't be something that we could then exalt ourselves in and and measure up in and prove ourselves in. And he, he shows us in these verses why it couldn't be. Listen to it again. He says... He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Verse 21, for if a law has been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Here's the deal. If, if righteousness could come by the law, then Jesus didn't need to come and die. If if a law could be given that we could truly measure up in and that we could truly follow and that we could completely fulfill and that we could always obey, then absolutely the law would do it. But the law can't do it. The law can't fulfill those things. The law can't be that because the law is dependent upon the power and performance of a sinful person. The promise, on the other hand, is empowered and secured by the eternal God. You see the difference? You see, the law can't bring righteousness. And in fact, Paul talks about this in Romans 8, the beginning of Romans 8. The law, the law can't bring righteousness or life because it's bound up by our sinful flesh because it depends on us. We can't follow the rules. We can't measure up. The truth is, is that some days we can feel pretty good about ourselves. Oh, we can feel great. In fact, I mean, there's some days you might even get through some days and think, wow, I didn't commit any big major sins today. But there's not a moment in our lives that we are not falling short of the glory of God. And that Jesus couldn't come to us face to face and say, oh yeah, you think you measure up? What about this? Do you still measure up? You see, these rules, this law, it's dependent upon us. And so it has no power to bring life. It it can't bring life. God, in Romans 8, I, I meant to refer to this, in Romans 8, Paul says that God did what the law couldn't do because it was dependent upon sinful flesh that's who we are so the law the law is not contradictory to the promise the law is not contradictory to the promise and as we work through this further you're going to see it more clearly the law is not contradictory to the promise but to reject the promise to reject God's promise, to reject this promise and say, I don't want anything to do with it. I, I think I can do good enough on my own. To reject this promise is to condemn yourself to the, to the law. There is only two options. You stand in the promise and you accept God's grace through that guarantee. Or do you try to do what Jesus Christ could only do? That's our options. Our list of rules are really ir- irrelevant. So if we re- if we reject the message of God's grace, there is no other hope. So really what the law begins to do is point us to the truth of the promise and the necessity of the promise. It doesn't contradict it unless you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. It actually complements it. It actually points us to it. It actually drives us to the promise because there is no way. There is no way we can measure up. There is no way we can do anything. And there's no way that the law would ever bring life. Let's keep going. Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, the first point we made earlier, and then we're going to jump back to those points that I showed you, that, that in verse 19, Paul says, why the law? Is the law contrary to the promise? Why the law? Why did, why did God give the law? Is it two different, two different ideas? Is it two different things? And he says, absolutely not, but here's the deal. Here it is. God gave the law because of transgression. And then he says that the Scripture, which really is referring to the, the law, it's really referring to the Old Testament, which these things Paul uses interchangeably. He says that the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. And I think there's a couple of things that we can learn from this as we think about that God gave the law because of sin or because of transgression. I think first and foremost, we can learn that God gave the law to make sin more sinful. Wow, how can sin be more sinful? God gave the law. See, here's the deal. Let's think about it like this. In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve have have eaten the fruit, and they are hiding and scared because God is about to just come down on them, and they they know they're busted. They know they're in trouble. They know that there's something bad coming. They're hiding. They're trying to cover up the you know all the relationships that they have had in this life they're just they're 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 ruined. That there's problems. They're covering themselves up, they're hiding from God, all this stuff going on. And God comes to them and stands above them and says, Wow, what happened? Who gave you the fruit? You know, and and he begins to speak with them, and, and Adam tries to make excuses, Eve tries to make excuses, and the reality is that they're standing there disobedient. And in the moment that they ate that fruit, something changed in their life. It wasn't just their relationships, they died spiritually. Immediately, they fell short of the glory of God. They became something other than they were created to be. As God looks on them and begins to talk to them, not only were they short of His glory, not only were they not measuring up to what He created them to be, but as He begins to speak, He lays out a curse. And everyone that came after them is under this curse. And so we recognize from the very beginning, from that moment, that sin has existed in creation. But how do we know what sin is? Well, we have our consciences, right? I mean, come on, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to have somebody tell me it's wrong to murder people. There's, there's something in me that just says that's wrong. I don't have to have people tell me that it's, it's wrong to... Um, Cheat on my wife? I I, I just know that's wrong. Oh well, wait a minute! If we think of it in that term, I mean, really, there's cultures all over the world that they marry all kind of women. There's there's men that have all kind of wives. It's not going to fly here. Which one's right? What did God really intend marriage to be? Hey, what if what if somebody decided that it was unlawful for us to gather and? Talk about God. How would we know if that's sin or not? How, what should we do? What if what if what if the government decided that all of a sudden all of a sudden that, that, that we should just be willing to surrender ourselves to them and worship them alone? What if we had a president that somehow figured out how to become a dictator and then, and then decided that he was a God? Would our consciences tell us the truth about that? You see, what the law does, it began to reveal sin. And, and, and really, the, the translation, if you go into the Greek, you can begin to see that the law didn't just make sin more sinful in the sense that, yeah, now adultery is worse than it was before. It's always been bad. I don't mean it in that sense. What I mean is, is that there's no escaping it now. God said it's wrong. So you know what? It's wrong. Premarital sex, wrong. Homosexuality, wrong. All of these things that our culture is is, is struggling with and and striving to adapt to and and, and trying to enjoy. God God has said it's wrong, but you know how we know it? Not because we feel it in our heart alone. But because he said it. You see, the law pinpointed sin. The law made sin sinful. And even as we read the scripture today, even as we read the scripture today, it points this out in us. It proves the total of of, of the term total depravity. There's no questioning it. Because I can sit and read the Bible and I can see that as I read through it, I can find things that convict me. Because there are areas in my life that I don't want to surrender. There's things in my life that I don't want to give up. There's, there's, there's idols within my heart that I would prefer to worship over God and His Scripture, the, the truth of Scripture reveals that in me. See, the law made sin more sinful. And by extension, it makes me more sinful. Not because the things that I do just got dirtier or got more filthy compared to God. But really, as I hear that I'm not supposed to do them, there's a part of me that longs to it. It's like that button that says, don't push. Don't push that. Man, I want to push it. I want to know what's going to happen. And maybe you don't all want to push that button. Maybe all of you don't want to push that button. But as Paul described it in Romans, he says, Hey, once the law came and was given and I understood it, there was a part of me that came to life and wanted to disobey it. I don't know why that is except that we are sinful people. And in front of the law, we can see that we are more and more sinful. You see, honestly, when we come on Sundays, I don't preach, typically I don't preach felt needs message. Like, I'm not going to come to you on Memorial Day weekend, and I'm not going to say, hey, instead of learning from the Bible today, let's learn about Memorial Day. I'm not going to come to you and say, here's how you be a good dad in a bad world. I want you to be good parents. Don't don't get me wrong. I want you to enjoy the the freedoms that our nation provides. Don't don't get me wrong. But my greatest desire is that when you come and you hear from the Word of God, that you stand and you're convicted by it. Because the truth of God's Word, the law, the, the Scripture, it imprisons us under sin and it shows us It shows us our sinfulness. But before it's all said and done and where we'll head today, I hope you'll always be reaffirmed that God's grace is bigger than that law. That His promise is more powerful than that law. That as bad as we fail, as as bad as the screw-ups that we make might be, that God's promise is supersedes the law It supersedes our own actions and our own works because that's what the scripture teaches us and this is why I teach that way because the law God's word itself shows us our sinfulness and pushes us to his grace see the law was provided because of sin And secondly, the law was provided in order to prepare us for Jesus. See, really, that idea that it complements God's promise, that it in some way adds to it, that in some way helps it along, that in some way it's all been a part of the same redemptive history, it was never meant to be the permanent solution. You and I can't obey every day. And the moment that we screw up, we're under the curse of the law. I'm betting that most of us didn't make it past a year. Oh, at a year, we're not even really thinking, right? But if you go back to the Bible, the moment we were conceived, we were conceived in sin in Psalm 51. You see, you didn't even get out of your mother's womb. And we had already been condemned by the law. We had already been shown by God's Word, His holy, perfect Word that we wouldn't ever and couldn't measure up. But it wasn't. It wasn't that the law was ever meant to be the permanent solution. In verses 24 and 25, he says, he says this. He says, "...so then the law was our guardian." I'm sorry, I skipped verse 23. Let's go back to 23. I don't know if I put it on there. I hope I did. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith could be revealed. That means that the law was given and it held us under its imprisonment. There's no other hope. There's no way out. But the faith would come. And that doesn't mean that, that these people before didn't have faith. The Old Testament says you're to trust God. But the faith that would come and, and, and the promise would be fulfilled when Jesus was born and when Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected and then said, Hey, it's by me. It's in me that all of this is fulfilled. It's in me that the promise is, is fulfilled. It's in me and because of this work that now you turn to me and trust in me. See, it was in that moment that, that was the permanent solution. Everything else before the law, the, the, the scripture and it imprisoning us under sin was temporary. It didn't, it was never intended to stand forever. The law was a temporary instructor not one that was meant to be for a lifetime. It was never meant to be that this was the way that God will fulfill the promise. And see then the law, and we've talked about this already, just by sheer fact that it was given, by, or given because of sin, the law then began to reveal their sinfulness and ours as well. See, if there were one or two commandments out of all 613 that they could grab hold of and say, yep, I do those, then they felt really good about it. There's this Pharisee, Jesus talks about this Pharisee that stands before God and prays and beats his chest and says, yeah, look at me. I'm so glad I'm not like these other weaklings I'm so glad I'm not like that man that's bowed humble and, 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 and a tax collector and hated and despised. Look at me in my life. Jesus says that man is condemned. There's no hope for him. So there's no way that we could ever measure up. The Jews couldn't do it. The Galatians couldn't do it. And we can't do it. Take one of the commandments. I already mentioned it once. Let's just take one commandment and just see how it works out in our life. You shall have no other gods before you. Can you measure up? Well, I don't have any wooden idols at home, and I'm not bowing and praying to a Buddha, and I'm not burning incense before some statue. Yeah, I feel pretty good about that. You guys feel pretty good about that? I feel pretty good about that. But wait a minute. Is that all there is to gods in our life? Wait, wait, wait. Um, you know, there's a problem I struggle with. I really like approval from people. I love to get the pat on the back. In fact, as I learned that I enjoyed this and I learned that this was a struggle that I had several years ago, I began to realize that I don't even care if people mean what they say when they say the good stuff to me. Hey, all I want is the Compliment. I couldn't care less if you mean it or not. You know, when we're done, I don't care if you really got anything out of this message. What I want you to do is come to me and say, good job, Seth. And that will make me feel good. I couldn't care less. Well, that's not totally true, but in the, in, in the depths of my heart, that's true. In the depths of who I am in my sinful flesh, that's true. Just approve me. Make me feel good, affirm what I'm doing. And when I began to recognize that, what I began to recognize was that there's many things in my life that I would do simply to seek that approval. There's things I wouldn't do simply to seek that approval. I wouldn't share the gospel with certain people because I wanted them to like me some of the hardest people that I have ever had to stand and be Christian in front of were people that I have lived in the midst of depravity with. Those people that I would go out drinking and partying with and the people that, man, even those that, as this began to happen, as this began to happen in my life and as my life began to be changed by God, those people that rejected me because of what God was doing in me, I still wanted their approval. And so I wouldn't say some of the things I needed to say. I wouldn't act some of the ways I needed to act. And then in certain circles, you know, I would measure it out and I would figure out, well, this is what you got to do to get their approval. And so I'd start to do that. That's a God. That's something that I'm giving my life to and shaping it around. That's, that's That's an idol in the depths of my heart that motivates me to live. Oh, it's easy to think that we don't have statues. Of course, we don't have statues. That's, that's not where we live. But I'm telling you that we all have heart idols. We all have idols that motivate us to live. And it's so, it's so difficult because now all of that, all of that wraps itself up into one. And even our best intentions are oftentimes mixed up with our mixed motivations. Tim Keller says that there's four Idols that are really at the core of all that we live and all that we do. He says comfort's one, privacy, lack of stress or freedom. That if you if you recognize that, hey, you know what? I don't want to cause problems. I just want to have it easy. I want the easy life. I want things to go my way. This is just what I want. Then you might have a problem with a comfort idol. Approval, I've already talked to you about that, that you live for affirmation, love, relationships, that you're not wanting to offend anyone, and you want just to be affirmed. You're always looking for the pat on the back. Control, self-discipline, certainty, standards. I mean, some people, this is another one I I really struggle with. It's not quite quite as bad as approval, but I like control. I like to feel like I got it handled. I felt like God gave me big shoulders because he wanted me to carry a lot of weight, and not just in my gut, I'm talking about like a load. And that's, that's the truth, and so I would try to do that. And there's this idea in my mind that nobody else can do it as good as me, so I really I struggle with giving other people things to do because, you know, if I want it done right, i got to control it. It's a struggle. Some of you may, may recognize that in your own life, and others for you, it may be power, success, and there's all kinds of different ways to measure success. Winning, <laughs> you want to be on Charlie Sheen's team, you know. You see how that guy's won. Influence, you, you want to be the one making decisions. You want to be the one in charge of stuff, you know. I mean, there, there's a part of us that, that this drives us. I don't know what yours is, but I've done this enough with people and I've talked with enough people that I've not found anybody that, that one of these four don't apply to And so I feel confident to say that probably you're not measuring up even to one commandment. Because in the midst of who we are, we are all really trying to stand up and be our own God. And we are living and designing our lives around certain selfishly perceived perspectives. Whether it's comfort, approval, control, or power, how that works itself out in your life, I I don't know. But I can tell you that, more than likely, it's working itself out in your life. You see, it reveals that sin in us. It was never meant to be the permanent solution, and also, I want you to see that the law reveals the need for a substitute. Preparing us for Jesus, the law reveals itself, or reveals the need for a substitute. Imagine. Imagine as we recognize and stand in the place where we are confronted with this truth, I can't even really always obey one law. Not even one. There's 613. I need help. We need help. What do we do? Well, in the law, God gave the sacrificial... Uh, laws, and he says this is what you're going to do and these animals are going to be a substitute but not really a substitute because they were really only ever meant to point to the substitute the whole sacrificial system was to point people to the to the one that would come and the one perfect sacrifice that would be made and they totally missed it because they thought that if they trusted in their own efforts of sacrificing these animals, that they were receiving God's forgiveness based on their efforts to sacrifice these animals. And they totally missed the fact that one day one would come who would allow himself to be sacrificed as a substitute in our place for our sin because of our sin. The law wasn't working against God's grace but it was driving us to this place that we would recognize our absolute need for it. Because you can't do anything to deserve anything from God. The law proves that. The law law points that out clearly. In, in, In the face of the law, you are more sinful than you could ever imagine. But because of God's grace... He looks at you and says you're innocent. That's the only way. This this goodness that we could never deserve. And so rather than climbing a ladder of the law to God and trying to stand before him, I would ask you consistently and constantly, don't wait for Sundays. Sit in the face of God's word and look at it as a mirror, and see your true nature revealed. We need help. Well, thank God He made that promise. Thank God. He didn't leave us to the law. Thank God that the law was never meant to only be, that the law was never meant to be the solution. Thank God that the law is not the way that we find our acceptance before Him. See, we're, we're about to come to this place. It's one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. He's about to show us this, this, this beautiful truth after having seen that the law couldn't do it for us. But the, the law demanded us to look to God and, for, and to look for his grace. He points out what that grace does and what that promise does. He's already hinted to it in verse 23. He says in verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's done. We're no longer under it. The law has no place in our lives except to continue to show us our need for grace. We can never run from this. We can never be past this. If there's ever a point in our lives where we are standing and thinking that in some way we are acceptable to God based on our own standards, we need to look at the law. Never. Never Never will we ever be able to do that. But now, in Christ, we no longer need a guardian. We don't need that instructor, that one pointing us to Jesus, that one watching over us, that one imprisoning us. We don't need that anymore. He says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's an extremely misunderstood verse. We'll deal with it more in next year. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Essentially what I want you to take from this today is there is no footing before God that one has over another. None of us have an advantage before God. The law levels the playing field. The law demonstrates that we are all fallen short of God's glory, that we deserve nothing from Him. But by faith we receive this great promise that we aren't simply accepted into His presence, but we are called His children. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I fail you fail but because of god's grace we can be accepted i, I can't measure up you can't measure up but be, but but in jesus we are adopted i mean consider that consider what it means to be a child of the most high God, the God who had power to speak things into existence, the God who had power to to sustain it all, the God who, who has this great love that he would sacrifice and suffer himself for an undeserving creation. And you're his child. Not because of the law, But the law drove us to a place that we recognize that it must be by faith. See, I and you don't deserve it. But God in his great goodness has provided this inheritance for you and for me. You see, it's an inheritance because we are family members. Not distant. Not distant. Not, not those estranged, weird cousins that live on the other side of the states. We're just a child. We are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And in a season that has been totally underplayed. I mean, we totally passed up Thanksgiving because Christmas started right after Halloween. I mean, yeah, we went and had the dinners and we sat around tables and I'm sure you saw your family and I know that there's people gone today that are still with family. But this is something to be thankful for, something to be grateful for. Not just one day out of the year, but a gratitude that really shapes us and motivates us and moves us to live every other day of the year. There's one last thought as we enter into a a season that's called Advent, as we anticipate the coming of our King, the coming of our Savior, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Isn't this something worth looking forward to? Peter says it's an inheritance that won't fade, it it, it won't falter, it won't disappear. It's always going to be there. It's an inheritance that makes all other inheritances Dull in comparison. Isn't it worth looking forward to? That Jesus Christ, who came once to die for you, is going to return to get you and bring you to be with him where he is. Because by faith, you've been made his child. God's child. Jesus' brother or sister part of the family of God. Not only something to be grateful for, but something to enter into our Christmas season to be expecting and to be longing for. Let's pray. Father, I, I know that these oftentimes are complicated, difficult lessons and technical at and, 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 and times. God, I pray But the truth of Your Word will just rest on our hearts. I pray, God, that, that not only will we experience conviction for sin in our life, but that we will be reminded of the great hope that's made possible by Your grace through faith. God, would You remind us? Would You let us see for just a moment who we are without You? God, that we would cling to your son. That we would lay our deadly doing down. And we would rest in the greatness of your grace. God, as we get up from that place, I pray that then you would motivate us to live in a way that honors you. Not that... Because we know, we don't, we don't get to just do whatever we want. We know that. But that we never earned our place before you. Then motivate us to live out of that. We love you. We thank you. And it's all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.